uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I'm Matthew Galt. This is Cyber. Listener, close your eyes. Imagine it's 2010. You've just learned about something called Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency, you're told. You spend about $50 and get 50 coins, thinking the whole thing is kind of funny. Cut to 2022. What you spent around 50 bucks on in 2010 is now worth $2 million. And it might be worth more soon. But there's a problem. You need a password to access that $2 million. And 2010 was a long time ago. It's a problem plaguing the world of cryptocurrency, an epidemic of millionaires unable to access their cash. Forgotten passwords, lost wallets, but there are options. To deal with the problem, a cottage industry of asset recovery specialists has emerged. One is Crypto Asset Recovery, a startup run by a father-son team in New Hampshire. They are Chris and Charlie Brooks, and they are here with me today to talk about the business of breaking in. Chris, Charlie, thank you so much both for coming on to Cyber to talk me through this. Y'all gave each other a look as if I'd screwed up something in the intro. <laughs> no, it was perfect. Okay. It's very smooth. We love to see how people introduce us every time. No, it's great. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good story, right? It is. You know? Yeah. It's, and it's not one that a lot of people hear every day. So the, the take people take on it every time is, is always different. And it's interesting to hear. What are some of the, now I'm fascinated by this. What are some of the other like, what does the version of the introduction tell you about the person that's about to interview you? That's a good question. One thing we get a lot is we're introduced as hackers, as white hat, sometimes black hat. And, you know, that tells me that maybe they are not super in tune to the to the hacking space. But um, I think I think generally that tells us that maybe we're speaking to somebody who's a little less in tune to Bitcoin and how cryptocurrency works. Some people do have this idea about us that we are we're hackers and we're sitting behind these massive vertical monitor- monitors all day, you know, breaking into the mainframe. And in reality, it's more art and less physical cracking. And so I, I think that's the main takeaway I get from it usually. And I'd say, I'd say you're a storyteller. Like you want to approach this as yeah. like, you know, uh, you want to set the context, set the frame. Like how do I present these people to make it the most exciting? Um, because we're pretty boring. Well, with that in mind, stories have a beginning. <laughs> so let's get into some basics up here at the top. Um, for people that may not know much about crypto, how is it stored? And why can that be a problem? Sure. So um, all crypto is stored on a blockchain. It's essentially records in a, in a special kind of database. Um, the, where, and so all that happens when you send money to someone or someone sends money to you is that the entry in that database gets changed. It essentially says um, these funds used to be controlled by this person and now they're controlled by, I shouldn't say person, they used to be controlled by this particular private key and now they're controlled by a different private key. And so when we talk about crypto wallets, it's, it's often a little bit of a misnomer because what's stored in the wallet is not funds, right? What's stored in the wallet is uh, a very long string of, of numbers and letters that give you control over um, 
making an entry in that blockchain. All right. Um, so what exactly is your business? What do you guys do? So we work with uh, unfortunate, but sometimes we like to call them very fortunate clients who are for- forced to hodl, um, folks who have lost access to that private key. And like you said in the intro, the most common issues that we face are, you know, forgotten passwords. So it can be, where did I hold my funds? I have this password and, and wallet identifier laid down and how do I access my funds? Most commonly, it's a password recovery. And so in that scenario, we're working with clients hand in hand to, to really get a feel for how they make passwords. Because I think it's commonly known that as humans, we are, you know, creatures of, of uh, repetition. And so when you're going to make a password for a Spotify account, your password may very well be, be incredibly similar to that of your blockchain account or of your Bitcoin core wallet. And so that's the, that's the cornerstone of our business is working with our clients to try and get in their head and try and recreate the steps they took, you know, maybe 10 years ago when they set up their Bitcoin wallet. So this, sorry, go ahead. You know, there's this, this idea that I really like, okay. That, um, and it, it comes out of the, the sort of chess and chess gaming. Okay. So the idea is that the, the best human chess players today cannot beat the best chess playing programs. Okay. So computers that can play chess are better than humans that can play chess. However, the best, um, computer chess programs cannot beat the hybrid of the best human players plus the best computer players. Okay. And I think we're in a very similar situation that if you are trying to recover the password to a wallet and all you have is yourself, right? With your knowledge and you're typing in password combinations and maybe you have an Excel spreadsheet or you have a piece of paper, you've written out 20 combinations and you're crossing them off as you go through. You may be that best human chess player, but what you really need is the human working in conjunction with a computer that can try uh, millions of password variations a second sort of to, to work in combination with the human that's being creative and that's trying to dredge their memory for, you know, every way that they possibly may have created a password in the past. And so what we try to be is that kind of like best in class. Like we understand these wallets, we understand the, the different kinds of variations and how to attack them. And then working with a lot of compute power that's all, you know, air-gapped and offline, so it's not connected to the internet, to, to be running tens of millions, hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions. And even in, in the case of certain wallets, hundreds of trillions of password variations to try to find the right one. And we still scratch the surface on the number of passwords that, that are out there, you know, that someone could have theoretically created. Let's go back in time a little bit. Uh, I want to get the origin story of crypto asset recovery. When did y'all first hear about crypto? Was it a Bitcoin? What was, how did you learn about all of this? So uh, I'll jump in because I have a little longer history in this than Charlie. So um, I think I first heard about it when Wired Magazine did a story on um, the dark web. And, but I didn't, you know, I was much more interested in like how, how, how romantic is it that there's this like dark web out there with the shady actors and that kind of thing. And I didn't pay any attention to the Bitcoin side of it. So I think it's very dear. Like that's actually an origin story that a lot of people had when they're like, I don't give a crap about the dark web. We care about Bitcoin. And um, so I, that was early. I don't remember the exact year, 2000, 
10, 2011, something like that for that wired story. Um, I had a business coach. So I've been an entrepreneur for 20, close to 20 years now. And I had a business coach come to me in 2014 and say, you need to take a look at Bitcoin. Like this is going to be, this is going to be a real phenomenon. I think um, a single Bitcoin costs $600 at the time. And so I started reading about it. I read the Bitcoin white paper. I, um, and I pretty quickly realized that no, he was wrong. Like this was just like, nobody would ever want to like send, you know, nobody ever would want to buy something with crypto as opposed to a credit card. And so I just kind of like blew it off. Right. Um, and then three years later, as in 2017, as Bitcoin sort of did its first, its, its rise to around 20,000 US, um, that's when I got excited about it. And we went on vacation one summer and I needed like, you know, sometimes it's fun to have a book that makes you think big thoughts. And so I, I was at the bookstore on the first day of vacation looking for a book and I, I, I don't have the book anymore and I, I couldn't find it. It's I think like 2000 copies were printed or something like that, but it was about Bitcoin as I spent that week on the beach reading about Bitcoin. And that's when I bought my first Bitcoin and that's when I got excited about it. So uh, the way I like to approach life is when I get excited about something, I want to create a business around it. And so I started looking at different business opportunities and eventually sort of came across um, lots of Bitcoin talk uh, forum posts about people that had lost their passwords. And I was like, Ooh, like I'm a programmer. I know how to solve that problem. And um, so, yeah, that, that was, that was late 2017 when I had that idea actually bought the domain name and set up a business and started cracking uh, the first wallet. Yeah. And then enter 2020. I was a computer science student and COVID, COVID struck. And I, I, I came back home. I took a year off school to do a little travel and then to work on a business. And by travel, I will tell. Sure. Yeah. I, travel. Well, this is a project we worked on together. Actually, we, uh, bought an old an, an, an old school bus and we gutted it, painted it, threw some solar panels on the roof and and built like a fully functional RV that I traveled around the States in for a few months. Um, so that was our first, our foray into working together. Yes. Um, the first times we wanted to kill each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I had always followed my dad's businesses and I went to school for computer science uh, with the intention of starting my own business. And this crypto asset recovery in particular had always seemed really interesting because, you know, it's, it's digital bounty hunting. It's really exciting. And every time you open up a wallet, you know, there could be some, some lost fortune in there. And so, you know, in January of 2021, right around, we were hashing out business ideas. And this is when uh, Bitcoin was climbing. I think it was around 30,000, you know, it was starting to tick back up again. And, so we, we, we briefly talked about the idea of starting up crypto asset recovery. And after a few days of just getting the website back under, uh, you know, get, getting the back website back up and running and working back through the 150 or 200 clients we'd amassed over the past few years. Because I got, could actually shut it down for a couple of years. Right. And just let it go dormant for a couple of years. Right. Yeah. And so we got our first crack and that's when we knew it was viable. And we've been burning since then for a little over a year. Tell me about that first crack. I mean, I don't know how much uh, cracker client privilege there is. <laughs> uh, but, but can you tell me about like what, what that first crack was, how you busted into it? Can you, I mean, it may not be an exciting story, but I want to hear it. Yeah. It's not an incredibly exciting story, but it, it was to us. So yeah. 
this was, it was about two weeks after starting the business back up. And we had had conversations about testing out the business, kind of feeling it out to see, because in 2017, when my dad had run it, he started running into issues of, you know, uh, bots approaching him with fake wallets and, um, you know, interest declining as cryptos, as, as Bitcoin's price went down, because it is a very seasonal business. And so, you know, we were kind of playing with this idea. I'm not really sure it was going to work. And one night I was, I was working just in, in our kitchen and we had been working with a gentleman from, was it the Netherlands? The Netherlands. From yeah. the Netherlands for a little over a week. He was one of our first clients. And um, it was very closely related to a set of passwords he had sent us. So it was not our most, uh, our most exciting or impressive crack yet, but it was a substantial size. And so I think that first crack was definitely a proof of concept. It was, it was enough money that we both kind of, you know, a light bulb went off and we said, wow, we can, we can make a living off this. This can be a business. It's, it can be exciting every day. And I think it was a sense of euphoria because neither of us were quite sure that it was going to work. Right. And that was just, it was high fives all around. High fives all around. We're jumping around in the, in the kitchen. It was awesome. (laughs) How, How much was in there? I think we made about nine thousand dollars. Does that sound right? And we took twenty percent. So okay, okay. five grand, something yeah. like that. There is, there's often a mis, there's there's an interesting mismatch in this business that like the cases that are often the most interesting are often the least lucrative, <laughs> and so it's off. Like our bread and butter is like really these sort of like boring password cracks where right. the people were pretty close to their passwords. You know, it's not that. Like it still needed a million guesses to get it right. So it's still outside the realm of what a human could have ever done. But it's, you know, if you've, if you've been working a wallet for months and you've tried a whole bunch of different cracks and you've gone back to the client several times to get more password guesses, um, it's not that we don't crack wallets like that. We just cracked a wallet last week that we'd had the workout for well over a year. Um, but, you know, the odds of, the odds of recovery go down quite a bit the more you do, which makes sense. Charlie, so, sorry, Charlie, you said that the business was seasonal. Yeah. How does that right. explain that to me? Yeah. So this is something that we were completely unaware of coming into it. And then it kind of hit us like a truck yeah, as Bitcoin took its first few um, roller coaster rides with, you know, 46 or 50% drops. We find that as Bitcoin's climbing and prices irrelevant essentially here but as bitcoin's climbing or it's or there's a bullish narrative in the news people are coming out of the woodworks they're finding old hard drives or everyone thinks they bought five bitcoin in 2011 which very well they may have and we take them all on we work with them all and hold their hands through the process but then there's this uh this narrative that very quickly floods the market when you see bitcoin topple from 60,000 to 28,000 that Bitcoin's dead, um, that it was all a big hype, all a big bubble, you missed it and it's gone. And so I think in situations like that, people tend to put it on the back burner. They don't do any research into Bitcoin. They just kind of forget that it's there. And so we see our amount of client intake go down by 50, 60, maybe 70% at times when Bitcoin is doing big, big crashes. And it's good because it helps us um, catch up on clients that we haven't had time to give you know, a full look into or catch up on a backlog of work, but it is definitely seasonal. And so that's one of the main challenges we're trying to tackle 
as we run this business is how do we make it, you know, how do we sustain the business through bear markets as well as bull markets? All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after these messages. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. All right, cyber listeners, we are back on with Chris and Charlie Brooks, who run the company Crypto Asset Recovery. They will help you break into those crypto wallets if you've uh, forgotten your passwords. So... What does the day to day of this look like? You you get up in the morning, you have your two cups of coffee. Um, what what is your what is your morning like? What is your evening like? I'll jump in. Um, so there there are kind of two sides to the business, right? This is um, there's the cracking side, and this is the side where you are uh, you've already collected data from a client, right? All their password guesses and that kind of thing. What you're trying to do is, is create a strategy uh, to sort of convince your computer to run those tens or hundreds of millions of password variations. And I tend to do that work mostly at night when, when I'm working on wallets um, because it's uh, that's when it's quiet and, you know, I'm not going to, my dog doesn't need to be walked or I don't need to go to the run to the store or that kind of stuff. Um, the second half, though, is that this is a business like any other. And so we have to worry about and think about marketing and we have to think about, you know, what kind of SOPs or standard operating procedures are we creating? We are working with uh, our customer support team to make sure that they are um, handling cases correctly and that kind of stuff. And so there are bills to pay, there's <laughs> there's payroll to meet, all that kind of stuff. And so that kind of day-to-day or partnerships to build, that kind of stuff is like the day-to-day of what... I do nine to five is sort of cover those things. What's your schedule? Mine is, it's very much the same. So the beauty of the cracking part of this business is that we will spend 30 minutes or an hour, maybe working with individual client password lists and, and, and guesses and, or maybe seed partial seed phrases and wallet files. And then we set it and forget it. So we have some servers like the one that we have behind us here that will run for, you know, sometimes they're just an hour or two long cracks. And then sometimes we set cracks for over a week and set it and forget it. And we just see what happens. And so while that is happening, so that, that is a relatively small part of my day. And then the rest of it is very similar to my dad's. So we have a lot of development we're doing within the business side of things right now. Um, as my dad said, we are building and expanding our customer support team so we can help more clients. And so with that comes a lot of security measures we need to be taking. So um, a lot of the day is spent with updating our security practices, with uh, chasing down partnerships that we're, we're trying to, to get in the works. Um, and then also, you know, 40% of this business is working with clients who have password guesses and wallet files or partial seed phrases. And then 60% of it is explaining to folks who have been scammed or who threw away a hard drive or, or never recorded a seed phrase. 
that we cannot help them and, and why that is. And so at the end of the day, a large portion of, of our time is, is eaten up just helping people who were never properly introduced to the, the true nature or the, the decentralization of Bitcoin and, and why you can't actually access your funds. So let me, I just want to make, let me put this to you to make sure I understand. Like at a very top level, you have computers that are brute forcing passwords, right? Correct. Then you're also working with clients essentially to narrow down the possibilities of what could be brute forced by getting whatever they can remember from what the password that they made. Correct. Exactly. That's kind of how it works. Right. And so that actually ends up looking more like expanding. What can we check? Because oftentimes the issue is not that we have too much information. It's, and, and we understand the trust aspect here. It's, it's a scary thing to turn over a list of 200 passwords to strangers on the internet. But right. that is the issue is, 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 is getting enough information that we can cover the key space required to have a 30 to 50% chance of cracking this wallet. Is there a white whale case? Is there one that for whatever reason you get, you really thought you could get or wanted to get into for some reason and it just kept, it just got away from you. We've had a few. Yeah. So we had a wallet we were working on recently. It's a larger wallet, I think 44 Bitcoin. And, um, you know, one of the, so anytime you get into the space of larger wallets, right, we'll have people that, send us a thousand Bitcoin wallets or they claim to have wallets that hold a thousand Bitcoin. Um, you get into those, you start looking for red flags. Okay. Because there, there are a whole series of cases where um, these wallets are sold online, right. Uh, through various websites that where the website says, Hey, we've got this uncracked wallet. It's got a thousand Bitcoin in it. Um, you can buy it for eight tenths of Bitcoin and then just go crack it. Right. Just go brute force it. And so, um, we don't know anything about those wallets. Like they could be, they could be real, but stolen. It's a very viable possibility. They could be real, but not stolen. Actually, someone gave up on it and sold it. But now there've been a hundred different people that have tried trillions of password variations against it without success. They can be faked and actually manufactured wallets. So they look real to the casual observer, but you'll never get them. And so for all those reasons, most especially the potential theft reason, we won't work on those wallets once we see. So anytime a, a larger wallet comes in, the first step is we sort of put it through a set of filters to say, like, do we believe that this wallet is um, can be cracked, that we have the actual owner of the wallet that we're dealing with? So the, the first step is just essentially some research, right? You're looking for addresses that are connected to the wallet, that that have shown abuse or ransomware and that kind of stuff. The next step is to get on a call with a person. And it's very rare that someone that has, uh, that's trying to essentially run a scam on us will get on the call with us. And so this wallet, it's 44 Bitcoin wallet. The gentleman did get on the call with us uh, fully, you know, he had a fully credible story about, about this wallet. And so um, we were able to actually find the password to the wallet. Super excited, right? It was a 44 Bitcoin wallet. We're dancing around. We go to move funds and the the password won't move the funds, which is an interesting case. So what it turned out was that um, 
stop me if you want to explain this, but it's a, a an old Bitcoin core wallet. Okay, those wallets have both um, encrypted private keys within them, and then the wallet itself is encrypted. Okay, and so the password that we found decrypted the entire wallet, so that we could then see, and it decrypted many of the private keys that were in the wallet. But there were a handful of private keys in the wallet, the private key in particular that controlled the address that had 44 Bitcoin, that were not decrypted with the password we'd found. Okay, interesting case. So now there are two scenarios here. Either this is a heavily corrupted wallet, or this is a manufactured wallet for reasons we don't, you know, we can't really tease that apart. Like, why was this wallet manufactured if it was? Um, but yeah, that's one where we've been, we've looked at it at some depth and just, we're just, you know, we're stuck. Either it's corrupted beyond repair or it has some password that we have yet to find that's uh, a lot more complicated than the password we we did find for this wallet. What motivates someone to come to you with a scam wallet? There are plenty of services out there that for, you know, between 200 to $5,000, you can buy, let's say uh, 10,000 to $10 million in Bitcoin in, in these locked wallets. And they're always wallet.bat files. So Bitcoin core wallets, because those are editable and you can easily fake those. And so I, what we think is it, it it just comes down to optimism. People who who stumble across these sites uh, do believe they found a loophole in the system, and oftentimes these wallet files come with password guesses or supposed password guesses, um, and they end up buying it. And then their motivation quickly becomes, "Well, now I've spent five thousand dollars and a few hours of my time trying to crack it. How do I offload this onto some onto a professional team who might have a better chance?" And, you know, we completely understand that if you've spent money on this, you have actually been scammed. Um, and so, you know, we don't blame you for trying. But the 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 side of it that people don't understand is that if you're buying a wallet online, there have already been a thousand people who have tried to crack it. And more likely than not, it's a 32 character randomly generated password that will never be recovered. So we will never work with a client on that. And there is no reason ever to purchase those wallets. So we don't blame you for trying, but the motivation I believe is to recoup your losses after you've realized, Oh, I don't think I can successfully get inside this thousand Bitcoin wall. Right. And then we only charge on a, on a percentage of of funds recovered. So if you are this person that, that now owns this, this locked wallet, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer for you. Well, let's just pass it off right. to these folks. They'll spend their own money trying to crack it. I don't owe them anything up front. I don't owe them anything unless they're successful. So, um, yeah, I think that's the, yeah. that's the explanation. Yeah. Do you take um, payment in crypto? We do. Yeah. So once we crack a wallet, we take control of the private keys and we send ourselves funds and then share the password, private keys, or migrate funds, depending on what's necessary, um, to the client. So we're big into it. Yeah. So we take everything in Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum, whatever we crack, we, we take it in that currency. Is it mostly Bitcoin? Oh, 90, 90, 96, 98% Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, 
what is your is all the computer banks stuff at your house or do you guys have servers off site? Like what do what do your machines look like that you're using for this? So you know, here's an example right behind us. So it's uh these are computers, they're rack mountable, they are um they're essentially a CPU with a bunch of um GPUs, right? Graphical processing units that are set up for gaming, right? So uh the kind of cracking that we do. Uh, the kind of math involved is very easy to run in parallel on many different circuits. And so that's why these GPUs are so efficient at cracking these passwords. Um, all of those are either, yes, at our home office or offsite, and they're all um, air-gapped so that they are not connected to the internet directly. So that means we use a lot of sneaker net where we have like USB drives and we're walking to computers or we get in the car and drive and get to our computers and um, that's how we move wallets around and that sort of thing. Yeah. When you're talking to clients, when you're, when you, when you're doing that, like first interview with somebody, what are the things that you hear that will make you say, I know we've already talked about this a little bit, but I'm curious, like, what are the red flags? What makes you say we can't help you? Right. So, all right. So at a high level, if, if they're involved in a scam, right, if they have been scammed out of their funds, we neither we nor any other private company can possibly help them. This becomes a law enforcement issue. Um, something to set scams aside. Um, I would say the the number one red flag where I'm like eh, is um, we get on the phone with someone and they they remember buying Bitcoin, but they can't find any record of it beyond just an address where supposedly their Bitcoin is stored. Okay, so we can't. The way we crack wallets is we get some wallet backup. And that wallet backup is essentially an encrypted version of the private key. So we have that in one hand. In the other hand, we have their best guess as to what the password is. And then we can go offline on our AirGap computers and we can say, okay, try the first password. Try, you know, a first variation of the password. Does it work? Did it unlock? No. Try the second. Try the third. Try the 10 million. Try the 11 million. Okay. And so... When people come to us and they're like, yes, I bought 50 Bitcoin and here's the address. I know where they're stored. That doesn't get us any, you know, you, you cannot mathematically, you can't move backwards from an address to a private key. Like these are one way, one directional hashes. And so it's, you know, that's a very common story. And what we try to do is we try to say, well, look, here are some resources on how you can sort of work through your hard drive, work through all your old emails and see if you can get some kind of backup of the, of the encrypted private key. But when, when we leave people on those calls, it's very rare that people come back and they say, I found it. <laughs> you know, that's just, that, that happens very rarely. Um, and that kind of goes back to that case of like the excitement level is often at odds with what actually pays the bills, right? If you, if you're like, I just remembered, I, we had a client come to us. Okay. And she had, you know, 10 years ago bought 70 something Bitcoin to buy a pair of shoes. Okay. So she had to buy that. Or it was a bag. Maybe it was a bag like a, and, and so she had to have the Bitcoin. She, um, never ended up buying the bag and she still has the computer functional that she bought the Bitcoin on, but we have no, we can't find any trace. So we've looked at that computer, right? And we've gone through the hard drive very carefully. We can't find any trace of a Bitcoin core wallet, a multi-bit wallet, any of the old wallets that would have been used at that time. She can't find any trace on 
you know, the, the online wallets like a blockchain.info or blockchain.com, Kraken, that she ever had an account at those places. So you sort of try to walk someone through that story, but, but if you can't find a backup of the wallet, if you can't find some evidence in the, the means with which the wallet was actually created, then you're stuck, right? That, that Bitcoin exists. I believe her that she bought it, but uh, without that backup, you know, that's just a dead end case for us. It's kind of fascinating because you are simultaneously, I mean, I'm sure sometimes in the same day, uh, breaking hearts and making dreams come true. (laughs) Right. Depending on who you're talking to, right? Unfortunately, day to day, it feels like much more often we're breaking hearts. But there are those, those gleaming moments every once in a while where we do get inside inside a wall and it doesn't need to be of, of any incredible value because these were completely lost funds to our clients. And so after eight years to get inside a wallet with, you know, $5,000 in it, that's a, that's a great payday they didn't see coming. And so regardless of the payout, it is always really nice to get on the call. And those make up for the countless emails we have to send saying, I'm so sorry, we, nothing we can do. And this is why. I would say regardless of the payout, as long as the payout was what they expected, right? as long as the, but actually on close to 50% of the wallets that we successfully crack, the wallet is essentially empty. Might have a couple dollars in it or it has absolutely no value in it. And that happens for a host of reasons, but it's very common that um, we get into a wallet and, you know, the funds someone thought were there were never there or they were moved out six years ago or there are all kinds of scenarios that come up. What do y'all think is the future of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin? That's a really good question. This is one that I like to kind of tiptoe around because I'm very cautious of sounding like an idiot on the internet. (laughs) I think uh, we have talked about this, that there is an issue in, in private key security that hinders Bitcoin's ability to grow to any any public uh, any critical mass any any public complete public adoption because you know it's quoted that every year roughly 2% of bitcoin is lost and so using our numbers roughly 30% of that bitcoin can be recovered every year and that number fluctuates based on how it's lost um but that is an issue going forward and so we see custodial wallets doing very well right now um but we also see a lot of issues with custodial wallets happening. You know, a lot of uh, hacks that are taking place, um, a lot of regulatory pressure coming down on exchanges and custodians. And so it puts into question what a custodial future for Bitcoin is going to look like. And so for the time being, when we recover funds for a client who is not so technically inclined or doesn't have the fundamentals of Bitcoin down pat, we do recommend they go to a Coinbase or a Kraken or something custodial where they can, you know, send in their ID and get their funds back. Um, beyond that, we have talked to a few companies and a few uh, more, a few individuals in the space who are actually looking at building alternatives to password protected private keys. So biometric private keys, um, ways to store private keys securely that will not fade over time, will not be lost uh, to time. And multi-signature. Multi-sig private keys, exactly. So there are a host of, of different uh, variations on private key stores that are coming about. But 
that's a question I'm not really sure I can answer because the custodial aspect right now seems to go against the decentralized and uh, the, the, the freedom centric, you know, uh, uh, backbone of Bitcoin. Well, and also those, when you start getting into the custodians, that's when some of the really bad stuff can happen, right? Some of these, some of these hacks, you know, just these, uh, Anytime you've got a bridge or something where the decentralized network is hooking up to the centralized service, that's where like all the really horrible things <laughs> seem to be happening, right? Exactly. Mt. Gox, Bitfinex. I mean, this is where right. catastrophic events do happen. Right. And a, a large percentage of the clients we work with come from blockchain.com. And the, the sole reason for that is that blockchain.com is one of the earliest wallet providers who has not yet been hacked out of service because they are a non-custodial wallet provider and they have no access to private keys separate from the client and their password. Um, and so that that is, you know, the proof is in the pudding that that's what works. Bitcoin Core, blockchain.com, these are the wallet providers that have been around forever and will never be hacked. And so a, a, a non-custodial feature for Bitcoin is where I believe it's going to go. But the exact shape it takes is, it's tough to guess at this point. And I completely disagree. <laughs> I, I think the custodial future is exactly where 90% of all cryptocurrencies are going to happen. Um, and I would argue that, um, you know, the risks that the average person faces with their crypto are, uh, are different from what people were worried about 10 years ago. Okay. So for the average investor, your odds of having funds stolen are fairly low. Like Charlie and I can tell you, you, we work with people that are desperate to recover their own access, their own password. All right. They have a backup of the, of the wallet. They have a good idea of how many funds are there. We still can only help a very small minority of them. If, if you're an individual consumer with $10,000 in a Bitcoin wallet, the odds of someone flat out guessing your password, somehow getting a hold of your, an encrypted version of your private key and guessing your password, that is not a risk you need to be dramatically concerned about. You do need to worry about losing your money to scams, okay? mm-hmm. which are much easier to do. That's certainly easy to do through a custodial wallet, but there are more attack surfaces uh, on a non-custodial wallet. You do need to worry about losing your password or not understanding what your recovery how important that that 12 or 24 word recovery seed is and therefore not protecting it well enough. Those are the real risks. And so I think that um, non-custodial or self-custodied wallets where you take control of your private keys and you protect them, I think that's always going to appeal to like a libertarian left-brained kind of person. But like if you, I, I don't know what, I have retirement funds, right? With like a Fidelity, with a Vanguard. I never worry that I can't move those funds on a moment's notice across the world, right? I don't think twice about having a a custodian protect those funds for me. And I think that's the only approach that's going to work for the, um, the everyday investor that just wants a little exposure to sort of the, the crazy, increases in valuation that crypto can provide, like they're only going to work with a custodial provider. And I think that's fine. I have no problem with that. If you then want to get into DeFi, if you then want to get into NFTs, obviously Coinbase is going to have an NFT product, but it's not quite there yet. I think I read that they have over 3 million people on the wait list for that product now. 
Um, but today, if you want to play around with DeFi and NFTs, you need a non-custodial wallet. I would just strongly recommend that if you're new to the space, that you start with a custodial wallet and you sort of, that's where the bulk of your funds are. And you start to dabble with a little bit that, you know, that you can afford to lose on the side with these more cutting edge products. Well, this segues quite nicely into my last question. Um, And this is maybe in opposition to your business model, but uh, (laughs) what is your advice for people that are getting into this? Um, How can they make sure they never have to contact you? Right. Our advice is pretty simple. My advice, I'll start there, is pretty (laughs) simple. Um, It is to begin with a custodial wallet. This is, this is what we advise clients when we do recover funds. Then begin with a custodial wallet, make a few transactions, make sure you understand the importance and the function of an address and of copying it correctly, of verifying that address before you do send, send funds, um, of checking your network. So you're not sending ERC-20 tokens to the Binance network or vice versa. Once you've made a few transactions, once you understand the basics of how blockchain works, move over to a MetaMask wallet or a Coinbase uh, non-custodial wallet and make sure you walk through the steps. Make sure you walk through the initial onboarding security procedures. Understand that 12-word phrase, that 12 or 24-word phrase that pops up on your screen. Make sure you actually understand the importance of it. Record it somewhere safe, write it down on a piece of paper, put it in a painted shoebox or in in, in a little $30 Amazon safe, something that you can notice as being your location for secure documents. So when you're going through and doing your spring cleaning, or if you're moving houses, you don't forget the box, you don't shred the paper just sitting on your desk, anything like that. And then slowly, you know, move a little money into your MetaMask or your non-custodial wallet, play around with DeFi, with NFTs. And once you're sure you understand the difference in networks, in um, how to secure your private keys, uh, then you can start moving more substantial amounts of money of funds in into these non-custodial places. Um, there are more granular suggestions like you know verify the, the 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 websites that you connect your wallet to because that's a very common place that people get scammed. Never share your wallet with a non-trusted third party. You know this is why we get on on Zoom calls with our clients before. Um, exchanging any information, why we have a, a contract in place with our clients is to be completely compliant and above the board. Um, don't send anything over Instagram. That's always a red flag. <laughs> um, those, those are the tips we give to people and how to avoid the, ne- the, the, the necessity of, of reaching out to us. Because I like to say that we are trying to phase out our business one client at a time. We're trying to move people away from needing password recovery altogether. And I like to tell them to shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think that's, I mean, in a nutshell, I think that's, that's great advice. I think um, your listeners probably understand the importance of that seed phrase, that, that 12 or 24 word seed phrase, um, that is a representation of your private key. You need to, you need to make sure that you write it down correctly. Okay, that's critical. You want to you be extremely careful with that. Um, anytime you're moving a large amount of funds, there's no, there's no problem with sending a test transaction first and making sure it, it, um, it shows up, right? Like you could send, this gets ex- 
expensive on Ethereum, for example, sometimes. But um, if you're sending Bitcoin around, sending Bitcoin is very cheap. So maybe send $10 in Bitcoin somewhere before you send $10,000 in Bitcoin to the same address. Make sure it shows up. Make sure you are very comfortable with those steps. Um, and then I love the $30 safe idea. I think just like having, if there, there, there should be a place in your home where you keep your passports, right? Your the title to your car. Okay. Nobody's going to throw that stuff away because it's marked in some way. And this is where the $30 safe idea comes in, but that's a great place to also store your 12-word key because your spouse, your kids, you know, they could easily, you, as you're, you've got a stack of papers that, you know, someone's telling you it's time to clean off your desk, right? And you're finally like, I can't go through all this stuff. You throw it away. Two years later, you're like, what did I do? Yeah. But I think understanding what that, that that mnemonic phrase is always your backup. That's that seed phrase, mnemonic phrase goes by a lot of terms, but it's 12 words, it's 24 words. Understand the importance of that and, and treat it as a, as, as, as actual cash. Because in a way that is cash. So you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't leave cash at the bottom of a trash bag, right? All wrapped up and tied off, right? So in the same way, you don't want to leave this recovery phrase marked as anything other than highly important and critical. Chris, Charlie, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's fun. The business is Crypto Asset Recovery. If you uh, liked this episode of Cyber, we have lots more. Like and subscribe to us on iTunes or anywhere else you're listening to your podcasts. Helps other people find the show. And if you want to see more of Chris and Charlie, go to youtube.com forward slash motherboard and watch Cryptoland. It is a show that we have made that explores the good, the bad, and the weird of cryptocurrency. Five episodes are out now. They're all wonderful. Chris and Charlie are in episode four. I'll talk to you all next week. Keep your passwords safe until then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.